you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Genesis as we uh, are continuing to work our way through there. Uh, we are starting what is now the third book of Genesis, if you follow the Hebrew outline of the book. And uh, the third book begins with, these are, these are the generations of Noah. Uh, the second book were, these are the generations of Adam. The first book were, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then the first part of the Genesis is a prologue. So let's follow along. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read from verse 9 to the end of chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it in length of the ark. 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set a door of the ark in the side. Make it with lower, second, and third floors. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you and keep, to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. It's difficult to come to a story like this if you have grown up in Christian circles and listen to it with fresh ears. It's a very familiar story to us. We remember it from our childhood days in Sunday school, and if you're old enough to remember flannel graphs, you remember flannel graphs of the ark. Often there's a big boat that's portrayed and an old man with a long gray beard that's hammering away on some sticks of wood or a lineup of animals that just goes forever and ever. And then maybe there's a depiction of the ark that's floating and then it comes to rest on a mountain and then a big uh, or a dove is sent out and he finally comes back with an olive branch in his mouth and then we're back on the earth. And that's our story or our accounting of the story of the flood. It's hard to actually hear alongside of that or simultaneously the rest of the story, so to speak. It's a brutal story. It's the story of mankind's rebellion. The earth is described here as being corrupt and full of violence, so much so that God is going to judge this world of sin, and he's going to flood the world and kill everything in which is the breath of God. The reality is, is that salvation is only found in God's provision of the ark. 
I wonder, too, if we take this story seriously, particularly in the modern age in which we live when the word of God is pummeled, it seems, at every direction. Are we inclined to accept the description of humankind more than the description of God about the ark and about the flood? Are we inclined to doubt the historicity of this account and and our minds say, well, it was probably a local flood. There, there's no way the whole earth could have been flooded. And well, it wasn't every human being that was killed. Maybe there was a lot of them, but probably not all of them. But the historicity of the flood is assumed again and again and again in the Bible. You find it referred to in First Chronicles, in Ezekiel, in Matthew, in Luke, in Hebrews, in First and Second Peter. You find Jesus speaking about the flood as though it were history. Jesus believed that Noah was a historical person. Jesus believed that the flood destroys the whole earth. Jesus used the destruction of the flood to warn of the destruction of the earth that is coming again at the end of this age. Are you willing to say, well, Jesus didn't really know what he was talking about? If Jesus had lived in our days, he might have known a little bit more and he might have been, had a different perspective on Noah and the flood. The fact of the matter is, Noah isn't a minor character in the Bible. He's mentioned over 50 times in 11 books of our Bible. And I think, too, if you begin to discount the story of Noah and the flood, how do you make sense of the coming judgment of God that will happen at the end of this age? You have to think through this because there's a comparison in the Bible, there's a reminder in the Bible, there's a warning in the Bible that just as God promised to destroy the earth because of its corruption and violence with a flood, he promises also to destroy this earth one more time with fire. He promises that that will be a complete and utter judgment of humankind. And this whole earth in which we know it will be destroyed. And just as the ark was the only means of safety through the flood of judgment that God would send, so Jesus Christ is our only means of safety through the coming judgment that will happen at the end of this age. Just as God provided the ark to Noah, God provides for us the ark of Jesus Christ. He makes a path for us. He makes a savior for us. He makes one whom we can hide ourselves in and get safely to the other side. This sixth or this third book, The Generations of Noah, goes from uh, chapter or verse 9 of chapter 6 all the way to verse 29 of chapter 9. It's a large chunk of the book of Genesis. It's tied together with the book of Adam in the sense that at the very end of this, in verse 29, remember we went through um, chapter 5 and every single person that was mentioned says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. You read verse 29 of chapter 9 and it says of Noah, the very last thing of Noah, and he died. It's tying Noah not only to the book of Adam, but also to the line, the godly line of Seth. But at the very heart of this book of Noah is the fact that God judges sin, but that God also provides a means of salvation from his judgment upon the earth. It begins here then in this book by describing Noah. If you want to find a fuller exposition of this, um, Pastor Andrew preached on this about three weeks ago, and it's well worth your time going to 
uh, listen to that message, the simple faith of Noah in the days in which he lived. But Moses here is described, or no, Moses. Noah is described in terms of his relationships. I think that's one of the, 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 the most accurate ways to describe an individual is in terms of their relationships. Really, their accomplishments are not as important as their relationships. Their internal relationship with themselves, their relationship with people around them, and their relationship with God. And so what do we read of Noah? Well, we, said, we read that, or Noah, that he was a righteous man. That's really uh, talking about his inner being, his inner self. And he wasn't righteous because of his works. He was righteous because he had put his faith in God. By faith, Noah built an ark. His was a righteousness that was not earned. It was a righteousness that had been given to him by God. And it's a righteousness that describes as an individual who walks in the ways of God. And so that's simply telling us that the inner character of Noah, he was connected with God. That he, God's law shaped and determined the direction of his footsteps. The second thing that we read about him is his relationship with his contemporaries. It says that Noah was blameless in his generation. That is a really astounding statement to have been made about this particular individual. His actions, the righteousness that was inside of him, showed itself externally. It showed himself in his words. It showed itself in his actions. It showed him as the, as the way that he walked with those amongst him. He was a man of his word. He was a man of, 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 of example of what it means to walk with the Lord. He was a patient man. It doesn't mean that he never sinned. Blamelessness doesn't mean a sinless perfection. Blameless it means, though, that you walk in the path of God. Blameless, is, uh, blameless carries with it the fact that that was his character and that he, what he professed is how he lived. He wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't sort of a, a, a two-hour-a-week man of God. He was a 168-hour-a-week man of God. There was not a time, there was not a moment, there was not an environment, there was not a situation in which Noah was not compelled to live out his confidence and his trust in God. And so he was blameless amongst his generation. And then it says that of his relationship with God, it says that he walked with God. There's only two people in the Bible that are described as walking with God. One of them was Enoch. And now we have Noah. He just walked in communion with God. He had fellowship with God. The warp and woof of his life was to, to begin with God and to continue with God and to end the day with God. He was a Deuteronomy 6 man. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, and soul. And when he got up in the morning, he was talking about God and walking with God. When he had breakfast, he was talking about God and walking with God. When he was going about building the ark, he was talking with God and walking with God. When he came home from dinner, he was talking with and walking with God. When he went to bed and as he was falling asleep, he was talking with God. His relationship with God is just summed up in this day in, day out, minute in, minute out communion and interaction with God. And the final thing it says, which is not much, which is also being part of a Deuteronomy 6 man, is he says he had a wife and three boys. Well, we assume he had a wife because he had three boys and his wife's on the ark. And it says, and Noah had three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They were on the ark with him. 
They must have listened to his message of righteousness. They too had found grace. I, I can't think of anything for me that would be better said of me when I'm dead was Paul was righteous. Paul was blameless amongst those he lived with. Paul walked with God. And Paul had a great relationship with his wife and boys. That's really what matters to me. And that's what is described of Noah here. And then we have this notion of the earth described. And the, the contrast is, it can't be more stark, the contrast between the man Noah, as he's described, and then the world in which Noah lives. In contrast to him, the rest of the world is described as being corrupt and violence. It's a further sort of explanation of verse 5 where it says that God saw the wickedness of man was everywhere on the earth. Their ways were sinful. This wasn't just an isolated event that happened once in a while. It had become a way of life for men and women on the earth in Noah's days. It's impossible for us to not understand this as a universal reality. The word the earth or the little phrase the earth is used I think some uh, nine times in just the few short verses that we've read. We'll read this again through the rest of the, uh, the flood account. It says all men, uh, all flesh, everything that breathed, it is unmistakably intended to tell us that this was a worldwide event and that every single human being on the earth was corrupt and violent. This word corrupt is variously used in the Bible. It's used to describe decay or something that is spoiled or marred or withered. The Greek translation of the Old Testament takes this Hebrew word and uses it in the context of moral corruption. Paul talks about one who is corrupt through deceitful desires. He says that bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, there's a moral corruption that happens when we hang around and make good friends with those who are not walking in the same direction we are. That if we walk with those who disobey God, if we walk with those who are against God, we will absorb their corruption Perhaps one of the most shocking parables of this word corrupt is to describe the days in which we live, the last days, which are the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, where John in Revelation 19.2 um, describes the great harlot who corrupted the earth. There's that phrase again, who corrupted the earth with her fornications. In other words, the, the, the great harlot, one of the ungodly trinity is constantly infusing this world in which we live with evil and it's corrupting it. And the other word that's used here to describe the nature of wickedness is violence. The worth was corrupt and violent. It certainly refers to physical violence. Uh, the Nephilim were men of renown. They were men of renown probably because of their violent tendencies. But it's more than that. Again, the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament translates this particular word um, with the word adikiakis, which means unrighteousness, lawlessness. It, it's, a, it's a violence that is the result of not walking in the ways of God. 
we, we know that the, the Ten Commandments talk about our relationship with God, how we love the Lord, and they talk about our relationship with humankind. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we throw out the law of God, rather than loving our neighbor, we begin to hate them. We murder them. We speak lies about them. We covet and take their stuff. We commit adultery with their spouses. There's a violence that begins to grow and flourish towards humankind rather than a love that is supposed to come from the law of God. And in fact, the Tanakh, which is the uh, Jewish translation of the Old Testament, says the earth was filled with lawlessness. It was a violence against God and humankind. Doesn't this describe our world now? It's a violent world, like just violent. You can't read headlines. You, you can't watch news if you watch news. You can't read a newspaper. You can't listen to a blog without seeing just this increase in violence. And isn't it corrupt? Do you not see moral decay at almost every turn? Do you not see an increase in, 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 in moral decay and, and rottenness in the world in which we live? The mystery of lawlessness is at work, as Thessalonians tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 7. It's fascinating, this phrase. Remember I said uh, the phrase, the earth, is used, I think, about nine times in the verses that I read. There's also a phrase in the book of Revelation which describes, I believe, the, the, the period of the last days. And I described what that period is. And it says, those who dwell on the earth. And every single time, it's referring to those who rebel against God, those who have rejected God. The same phrase that is used in Genesis 6 to describe the earth filled with corruption and violence is the same phrase that's used in Revelation to describe the corruption and violence of humankind who rejects God. Can't imagine a, a, a sharper contrast. The text that Doug read from, it says, um, to those, to the saints that are in Ephesus and who are in Christ. It's a, it's a fascinating, it describes that we live in two locations. As Christians, we live on the earth. We are saints that live in Parksville. We have a physical address. We have a physical place in which we live. Anyone who is a saint lives somewhere on this earth in the midst of all of this corruption. But we also have another address. We are saints in the Lord. We have sort of two destinations that we hold together as we live on this world. And so Noah was a saint. Wherever he lived, I don't know where it was, it doesn't say, but he was a saint where he was building the ark but he was in Christ. And then in verse 13, we have the judgment of God that is pronounced. It's hard to, to, to read these words. I think this is why our flannel graphs don't generally describe the judgment of God or our abbreviated Bibles don't describe the judgment of God in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. But if Methuselah's name means when he dies, it shall come, and I believe it does. Being understood that when he dies, judgment will come. And if Noah heard about the prophetic preaching of Enoch as he walked on this earth before God took him, 
where Enoch says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of unrighteousness that they have committed in such an ungod way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Then this might have not been a total surprise to Noah. After all, he walked with God. But how do you process such a word from God? What do you do as a child of God when you hear words of total and complete judgment spoken by God? These were the first recorded words of God to Noah. Words of judgment. I was reading Samuel. I'm in 1 Samuel in one of the books that I'm reading in my own devotions, and Here's this young boy, Samuel. He's in the temple. And you remember the story, and, and uh, the, the voice, the, a voice comes and says, Samuel. And he goes running to Eli. And Eli says, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And here's Samuel. And he runs up and he goes to Eli, and he says, no, no, uh, it's not me. And then there's this phrase that, that, that um, Samuel had not yet learned to discern the voice of God. And so he comes a third time, he hears this voice, Samuel, and Eli says, oh, okay, I know what's going on, God's speaking to you. And so he says, when, he, when you hear that voice again, say, hear, for your servant listens. So Samuel goes back to bed, and he hears Samuel, and he says, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Do you know what the Lord told him? The very first words of the Lord to Samuel, I am going to kill Eli and his boys and destroy his whole family. I can't imagine the shock to that little boy's system when the first words that he heard from God were words of judgment. How do you process such words? It's not a fun thing to talk about judgment, but how do you process words? What do you do in, in your head when you go to 2 Peter and you read there in 2 Peter that there is coming a day at the end of this age when God is going to destroy this present heavens and earth with fire? And he says, the heavens are going to be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. How do you process the words of coming judgment in Revelation 20, when at the end of God's reading the books, he says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. How do you process Jesus' words at the end of the parable of judgment in the sheep and goats where he turns to those on his left and he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All I'm asking is, how do you process those? What do you do with them? You see, the world ignores it. The world mocks. The world laughs. They listen to us and they say, you're some kind of wild crazy. Really, you, you believe in a God that's going to do that? That's not a God for me. Just as the people living in Noah's day mocked and ridiculed him as he built the ark for 120 years, day in and day out. Noah, what are you building, buddy? 
Noah, come on, buddy, an ark? Who told you to build the ark, Noah? 60 years in, hey, Noah, you've only got like about 20 cubits high. Really? You're going to keep going, Noah? It's not rained in, I can't even remember when it's rained, Noah. Noah, you haven't got much done. Do you still believe this God of yours, Noah? Do you still believe the words of God that you've been preaching to us that one day God is going to judge the earth? Because he was a herald of righteousness, wasn't he? He spoke for God. He trusted in God. He wrapped his head around God's character. He wrapped his head around the sin and the wickedness of the world and the violence. And rather than reject God's word, he humbled himself under God's word. And he lived out that humbleness under God's word before all of humankind around him. It says, by faith, Noah. This is how he walked, by faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Do you know how hard that is, loved ones? Do you know how hard that must have been for Noah? Noah, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to destroy this whole world by flood. Noah had never seen an ark. Noah had never seen a flood. But it says, Noah, by faith, being warned by God, in reverent fear. That was his, in reverent fear, that doesn't mean that he was, he was petrified of God. It means that he so respected God. He so respected God's word. He so listened to the character of God and what he had learned about God from those that had walked before him. He so trusted in God's word about a coming flood and for the saving of his household that he built an ark. It was remarkable of what is being said here of Noah. You, you understand? Noah had a single word of God. And it was that single future promise of God that Noah hung on to. Sometimes we want a lot more, don't we? Oh God, I, I really want you to lay out a bigger picture for me before I'm going to trust you. God, you see the circumstances of my life. There are so many of them. And it's, it's not good enough for me to just have a promise, a single. I, I need a lot more than that, God. Noah, based on a single future promise of God, lived his life and staked his future on that word. I can't imagine what was going on. It said the world was corrupt and violent. Do you not think that Noah's life was threatened regularly? Do you suspect that Noah finished cutting a whole bunch of lumber and then went to bed and came back the next day and all of it was stolen? Do you suspect that there were times in which Noah felt his whole family was in danger? And yet God preserved him. This is what's amazing to me, that, that in the midst of a world described like this, God preserved Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. I have 10 grandkids, three boys, and 
three daughters-in-law and a wife. I'm probably more aware, just because I think of it, of the world in which we live. And if I did not have the promises of God, and if I did not trust in the sovereign power of God to keep my grandchildren and to keep my sons and to keep my daughters from evil and from violence and from corruption and from wickedness, I would despair. But I am so thankful that God is able to keep us from the evil one. I am so thankful that God is able to preserve us blameless in this generation in which we live. I am so thankful that I can get up in the morning and entrust my family to the Lord. And I can fall asleep at night and I can thank God for his goodness and his keeping and his mercies upon my family. Just as God preserved Noah and his family in the midst of a corrupt and violent world, God can preserve your family in the midst of a corrupt and violent world. And I guess I ask myself and I ask you, do we not also base our whole future on a single future promise of God? That Jesus Christ is coming again? Is that not a promise that is to shape our lives, that is to shape our world, that is to determine how we live? This reality that God says one day, a trumpet is going to sound, the clouds are going to part, and Jesus is going to descend in all his glory, might, and power, and all his holy angels with him. And we who, are, we who have died in the Christ are going to be raised, and we who are alive are going to be caught up to meet the Lord, and so shall we forever be with the Lord, preserved from the judgment that is to follow. That is the promise that shapes our lives. And we see God's provision. We'll zip through this quickly. Just God's provision. God, it says in verse, uh, I believe it's, Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then God describes an ark and he describes the, uh, the, the dimensions of the ark. The, the point simply being this is God says, I will give you a means of escape, Noah. Uh, I, you, there's, not a, there's not a chance that Noah could have imagined what an ark would look like. There's not a chance that Noah could have determined the, 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 the perfection of God's wrath. And so God says, no, I, I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you an ark. So Build it. Here's, here's what I tell you to do. Build this baby. And so he builds it. He puts this thing together, and God gives him the details of it. The massive floating barge. It really was just a, a floating box. No, no sails, no uh, rudder, none of that. God would steer it. The wind would do it. Its whole purpose was simply to float, and that whatever was in that thing would be kept safe from the flood that would cover the whole earth. It would have a roof on it that there would be 18 inches between, that's how I think a big a cubit was, there would be 18 inches between the roof and the top of the sides and certainly for ventilation and for light to come into the ark. And there would be rooms on this ark, uh, important to have rooms so that you know, if the ark sort of tilted, all the animals won't run to one side and then you have a flip over. It would keep everything stable and keep things where they belonged. It was said somewhere, somebody did some research and there were some, probably some 35,000 species, depending on how you do species and kinds, but some 35,000. So you add another one for a male and female, and you've got 70,000 individual animals on the ark. And many of us think, whoa, that's brutal, because the first thing we think of is dinosaurs and elephants and hippopotamuses. 
And unicorns, yeah, if there were such things. And we think, well, there's no way the ark would have held them. Well, do you know that the vast majority of animals on the earth are smaller than a sheep? And someone has calculated that you could fit on the ark 125,000 sheep. And so if that's the case, then uh, the, 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 the calculation suggests that maybe the ark was 50% full of animals. So a lot of room for animals and for food and provisions and all of that kind of stuff. And why build it? Why build the ark? Because God is going to destroy the earth with a flood. Psalm 29.10 is interesting. It says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. God was watching. God was in control. It's the same word used, a flood. That, that word flood is only ever used to refer to the flood in Genesis 6. And so the psalmist is saying, God sat enthroned over the heaven, watching over the flood of Genesis chapter 6. And he wasn't just watching over Noah and his ark. He was watching over his promise that there would be a seed born of the woman who would destroy the serpent's head. Fascinating, the word ark. It's only ever used two places in the Bible. One, for all the descriptions of the ark in Genesis chapter 6 to 9. And secondly, in Exodus chapter 2, 3. Nowhere else in the Bible. And do you know what Exodus 2, 3 is? It's the ark that Moses' mother constructed, covered it with pitch, and put it in the Nile to preserve the life of her little boy, Moses. I think God is saying something to us here that this ark and the ark that Noah was preserved in were specially built to provide safe journeys for God's people. Talks about spiritual safety. We'll talk about this more. God said, I will establish a covenant with you. We'll talk about that another time. And God also provided for his future life. Not only did God protect them physically while he was building it and then get them on the ark, not only did God provide for them spiritually that he entered into a covenant with them, and, but God also provided for their future. How? We brought all these animals onto the ark so that when they finally settled, these animals would go back, they would repopulate the earth, and Noah would have something to eat. He wasn't a vegetarian only. He might have been. Maybe some of his daughters were. I don't know. Maybe some of his sons were. But he was also a meat eater. Um, Oh, I'm probably going to get in trouble for that. Um, Anyhow, God provided for all that he did. And what's Noah's response? It's very simple. Notice what it says in verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded. He didn't come to God and say, well, God, that's that's a pretty big sort of barge. Maybe I don't need to build it that big. And, you know, God, I think it'd be great to put some windows in it. So I'll just put a few windows in it. And you know, God, three floors. Uh, I think it probably should have five floors. No, it said Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. What's your relationship with the word of God? What's my relationship with the word of God? Is it a sort of easy come, easy go? Is this a, well, that's good advice, God, but you know, I, I need to mix that with, with some of Dr. Spock. Or I need to mix that with a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it'll be a good mixture, God. No, Noah listened to God's voice and God's alone. It's the word of God that ought to shape our lives and ought to direct our lives. And so we get to Christ. We, we need to get to Christ. And here's where we'll end. The provision of the ark 
to Noah, which was a physical thing of safety, but also a spiritual thing of safety, was given by divine revelation. Noah would have never known about an ark had God not revealed it to him. In the same way, Jesus Christ is made known to us through divine revelation. God has said, this is the Savior that you need. We would come up with all of our own kinds of saviors, but God says, no, this is the Savior that you need. And just as the ark was given to preserve Noah and his family through the time of judgment into the future world, so Jesus Christ is our means of deliverance through the sure and certain coming judgment into the new heavens and the new earth. There was a single door in the ark. I don't want to make too much of it, but there was a single door in the ark. Do you know that there is no other way to escape the judgment of God but through Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. If you want to escape the coming judgment of God that will fall on this earth at the end of this age, your only means of escape is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And just as God provided for Noah, not only before he got on the ark and while he was on the ark, but after he got off the ark, so Jesus will lead us through this world, through the judgment of God, into a new life on the new heavens and the new earth. But you must get there through Jesus Christ. If you're at all worried about the judgment to come, and we all should be, don't look to anybody else to explain it. Don't look to anybody else to provide you a means of how you might escape it. Look to the word of God, which says the only means of escape is to trust in Jesus Christ and he will get you to the other side. And if you're already trusting in Christ, continue to fix in your head the future promise of God that he's coming back one day. And he's coming back for those who are waiting for him, to those whose eyes are upon him, to those whose lives have been shaped by watching and waiting for his return. May God help us all. Father, we thank you for your word today. Father, words of judgment are never fun. They're real, and it helps us understand the seriousness of which you take sin, the offense of which sin is towards you, the way that rebellion corrupts us who have been made in your image. And Father, your judgment isn't just flung out randomly. You are a patient God, and just as in the days of Noah, you waited 969 years until Methuselah died that you waited 120 years before the flood came after you spoke. That your word tells us that you are patient, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to life. Father, may we never presume upon your patience. Your patience is not negating your judgment, but it provides us an opportunity to escape it through Jesus Christ. Father, would you make Jesus Christ large to all of us today, I pray in his name, amen.